Hello and welcome to the Pondering Scripture Podcast, where we'll open God's Word and let Him guide our lives. I'm your host, Jeremiah Cox. On this episode of Pondering Scripture, we intend to conclude our short series of a topical study on hope that we've titled Blessed Assurance. So far, what we've seen in this study is that God wants us to have confidence in our salvation, and He offers us that assurance, which is so blessed when it comes to the person who possesses it. Not only does He offer that, but we've also noted how necessary this blessed assurance is, and really it's part of what God commands us to be as Christians. If we don't have blessed assurance, if we're not confident in our salvation, then we're not going to be able to do or have the motivation to do anything that God requires of us. And when times get tough, since we lack confidence, we'll lack the motivation to do what God says through those tough times. The third episode of this short series considered the fact that some seek assurance where God has not offered it. And so instead of blessed assurance, it becomes false assurance. And those things are of no profit to the soul. It may make us comfortable in a time of confusion or doubt, but it's false comfort. In reality, God has offered blessed assurance, but He's only offered it in areas that are designated ultimately in His divine revelation. And so to offer blessed assurance that finds no basis in Scripture is to really offer false assurance. And what we need to do as Christians is to always demand the book, chapter, and verse. And that may seem legalistic to some, and some may even call it legalistic, but it's really just a matter of faith and obedience. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. So why wouldn't we demand book, chapter, and verse? Anything that is not from book, chapter, and verse is not from the Bible and is therefore not of faith. And so if I want assurance, then I'm going to make sure my assurance is from God's Word, not from any false source. And that's really what we're going to talk about in this last episode. So God offers assurance. He wants us to have assurance. Assurance is vitally important to our lives as Christians and walking by faith. We know that there are false assurances. So what is the assurance that God offers? What gives us a confidence of our salvation with Him in the end? There are so many things we could talk about. The Scripture is full of God's plan for salvation, and therefore it's full of the assurances He offers. And there are so many different sub-points that we could go into. But consider with me on this Tuesday just five points concerning things that God has done for us or planned for us that give us assurance, but also consider in it as we study these things that there is a very real component that belongs to man in this concept of blessed assurance. If we're not doing what God has called us to do, then there's no way we can have confidence But we know that we can't have confidence in doing anything without it being ordained of God. And so it's all concerning things that God has put into place that we have met halfway. We have done our part. 
and are allowing God to offer us and grant us the assurance he wishes to offer us instead of stubbornly and rebelling rebelling against him and, and refusing to accept what he offers. So what does God do and what has he done? What are the reasons for our full assurance of hope, our blessed assurance that we've been discussing throughout this series? Well, let me submit to you, first of all, that the start of this is God's eternal plan. And when we really think about planning, we think about care and deliberation. We don't think about last second scrambling. We think about per- a person who really has a thought of importance in a matter. They really care about something. And so it's not something they're going to do last minute. It's not something they're going to think about just every so often, but it's going to be a constant thought and preparation. And that's how our salvation is with God. This is not an afterthought. The premillennialists will discuss matters like the church, and they'll suggest that the church was really an afterthought. And that's a negative term, so you never hear that being said by the premillennialists. But this idea that Jesus came to earth to establish a physical kingdom but his will was thwarted by the Jews. And so instead of that, since he couldn't do what he wanted, he set up the church until a time when he could bring the kingdom to the earth. That's considering something that that happens last second. It's, it's showing God to be impotent, really, but it's also showing God to be one who doesn't very much care to be meticulous and thoughtful in his planning. But that's actually the exact opposite, and it contradicts what the Bible discusses as it pertains to God's character and planning. In Ephesians 1 and verse 4, the spiritual blessings that are offered in Christ, the Apostle Paul starts with this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. In the third chapter, when Paul is talking about his part in the revelation of the mystery, he speaks about an eternal purpose of God, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have a couple of phrases there that indicate the plans of God went before time even existed, before the foundation of the world and his eternal purpose. And so something that is eternal is something we really can't fully comprehend. We think in the realm of time, but this is actually without time. And so from everlasting to everlasting is our God. From everlasting to everlasting is our God's plan to save us. So before he even created us, he was thinking throughout eternity. No time frame for that. He was planning through eternity our salvation. Something that is thought through to that measure is going to be flawless, especially as it comes from the flawless one who is God. And that should grant us confidence that God's plans will work. We see it from the beginning put into place after Adam and Eve sinned and and God was speaking to the serpent and pronouncing curses upon him. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now to the reader of the Bible who's not familiar with its entirety, is not well versed in scripture, is not understanding about the fundamental principles 
and themes of Scripture. They might read that verse and think that God wasn't expecting the serpent to do this, and so now he's getting onto the serpent as if this is a last-second reaction to an action of the serpent, but that's not at all the case. This is certainly reaction to something done, but this was forethought. God knew before he even created us, he'd need to send his son. And that's what he's talking about, that his son would be born of woman and he would destroy the serpent that caused all of this trouble. We need to understand what Job understood in Job 42 and verse 2. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And so when we get to a psalm like Psalm 2, where the nations rage and plot evil things and try to overthrow the the Lord's Messiah, we've got to understand that that didn't happen at the cross. But actually what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that was thought out from before time began was accomplished at the cross, for there's no purpose of God's that can be withheld from him. Now that purpose obviously included the sacrifice of Christ. And so we can have confidence because of God's planning, but we can have confidence because of what that plan is. We can have confidence because the plan was an offering of a perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sin. Now, this is something that we aren't, we can't enjoy the type of intimacy with the Old Testament system of law that the Jews could. But a book like Hebrews can really flesh out for us and ripen for us the appreciation for the sacrifice of Christ in ways that we wouldn't know otherwise by looking to the insufficiency of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Consider, as we read Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, the kind of, of well, the lack of assurance, the lack of confidence that is manifested in the lives of these Jews as they offered these sacrifices. The Hebrew writer explains, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. What we have for us is a consideration of the fact that although those sin sacrifices were commanded by the law, commanded by God, they were never intended to actually fulfill the need concerning the sin problem. All they did was remind that this was not enough. As many animals as you would have slain before the altar, their blood poured out time in and time in and time out. All of these times that's happening and all of the carnage and the gore that these Jews are seeing, they come to the conclusion that it's not working. Think of all the blood that is spilled and it's not enough. And that tells us that there's no confidence in the old law. Now, the old law was a shadow to bring us forth to the thing that we could have confidence in. But we should understand that as good and wonderful as the old law was, it didn't really have a purpose to fulfill the needs of man in totality. But that would come with the new law in Christ. So there's no confidence in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But verse 5 continues in Hebrews 10. Therefore, because these things weren't sufficient, therefore, 
when he, that is Christ, came into the world. He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may have established the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now when it says that he did not desire or had no pleasure in these sacrifices, the context is a quote from Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. And that's actually considering this false view of the sacrificial system that the Jews had, that they could continue in their sin, they could persist in sin, and then offer all these sacrifices and that would nullify their sin. They could not repent, but do these things and in a ceremonious, outward, fleshly manifestation, those sins would be handled and it didn't matter if they sinned. And really what God desires is their full obedience. He doesn't desire sacrifices. It's not that he doesn't command them and they're not a part of the law and that must be obeyed, but what he really wants is your obedience, which would include those sacrifices, but not just the sacrifices in contrast to the sinful life that they're living. But here in Hebrews 10, it's attributed, obviously, in prophecy to the Messiah. And so what it's showing us is that those sacrifices of verses 1 through 4 weren't enough. God didn't desire those. Those weren't sufficient. They didn't please Him. But what He did desire is what He planned from the beginning for His Son to come into the world, offer up Himself, and then by that will were sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Verse 14 continues with this theme, that by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And in verse 18, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now that's important because he continues to show the reaction that has for those who have come into contact with that sufficient sacrifice. Therefore, brethren, having boldness or confidence to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for you as promised is faithful. And so we can have confidence because of the sacrifice of Christ that is sufficient. But something else we can have confidence in is the resurrection of Christ. Without the resurrection of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ is actually meaningless. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's trying to show the brethren that the general resurrection is indeed true, namely because Christ was raised from the dead. He explains, In verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And so 
without the resurrection of Christ, all that is preached about Christ's death and the atonement for sins and all of those things, his perfect life and all of that, that qualified him to be that sacrifice and that made that sacrifice meaningful is actually nullified by a no resurrection scenario. And so the resurrection of Christ is something really that validates the death of Christ and its sufficiency. But he gives confidence to the brethren in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So in other words, because Christ was raised from the dead, we know that we certainly will be raised from the dead. And as those who are believers and obedient to the faith, those will be raised to incorruption, to the resurrection of life that Philippians chapter 3 says Paul was seeking to attain to. And so we have the plan of God, the sacrifice of Christ carrying out that plan, the resurrection of Christ carrying out that plan further and validating his sacrifice and all that he claimed to be in his life. But how do we know that? How do we know? Well, we weren't eyewitnesses of it. There's not an eyewitness that has been alive for many, many, many years, thousands of years. The reason we know that and the reason we know how to come into contact with those beneficial blessings that God planned is through the revelation of his word. In fact, that's exactly how Paul began that chapter of 1 Corinthians. He said in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then also he follows with the eyewitnesses that he mentions, and that also is a record of Scripture. And so the reason we can have confidence that Jesus died for our sins, that he was indeed the sufficient sacrifice, and that he did indeed overcome death is the revelation of God's word. A word which the careful Bible student will come to realize is flawless. It has no contradictions, and it has so much internal evidence. But even then, God's been gracious enough to give us the ability to find external evidences. The Bible cannot be rejected with any sound evidence. The Bible is true. The Bible is stable. The Bible coming from a flawless author is flawless and eternal itself. And so that's why Romans 1.16 says that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In other words, if you are not in the gospel way, you're not submitting to the gospel, you're not walking according to the gospel, and you're not believing in the biblical sense of obedient faith in the gospel, then there's no reason for you to be confident. The fourth reason we can have confidence according to God's plan is the revelation of his word. But there's a fifth thing, and it starts with the text that we began this study with just three episodes ago. In Hebrews 6 and verse 11, Paul or the Hebrew writer, rather, said this, 
And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now notice he says, show the same diligence to, that is, as we noted before, the Greek word pros, which means forward to or toward, which means you're not there yet, but you are diligent forward to or toward the full assurance of hope. And so you're not there yet, but you need to show diligence to get there. And he explains what that diligence is in verse 12, that it's not sluggishness. That's the opposite of diligence, but it's patience and faith. And so diligence, faith, and patience are the fifth thing that must be had in order to have confidence. And just like Philippians 2 and verse 12 says, we are working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 13 says, it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so the way we have diligence, faith, and patience is ultimately through the word of God that we just talked about. It's going to strengthen our confidence and our hope. It's going to strengthen our faith. It's it's going to give us reason to persevere. And so all of it connects together, but without our coming to God and working with him, there is no confidence. The Hebrews were being admonished for falling away. They were apostatizing, and the Hebrew writer made sure that that was put to a stop. Earlier in chapter 6, he followed chapter 5 with the reason for his admonition. They had not grown, and they needed to be taught again the first principles of the oracles of God. And he, he mentioned some things about what that indicates, that they had tasted all of those things from God's word, the heavenly gift, and they become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. But since they're not growing in it, what that indicates is they didn't like the taste enough. Like 1 Peter 2 says, that if you've indeed tasted the Lord is gracious, then grow by that milk of the word. But they weren't growing, so it's obvious that the implication is that they didn't value it enough. But then he gives us an image that the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. And so that rain in that figure is God's word. It's those blessings they've tasted. But instead of bearing fruit, they're drinking that in and and bearing thorns and briars are really not bearing anything at all. They're just being complacent and regressing and And he's saying that you're near to being cursed. And so all of these things God offers, all the confidence in the world that he can offer, it means nothing if we don't take hold of it and grow in it. It requires diligence, faith, and patience. That's what the Hebrew writer continues to discuss. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Then he goes on in verse 16, beginning to talk about how God gives confidence. His counsel is immutable. That is, it's unchangeable. And to show that he took two unchangeable or immutable things that we man are familiar with, promises and taking oaths. And since he made a promise, which is unchangeable, you can't go back on a promise. And he took an oath, which is unchangeable. You cannot go back on an oath. Then he showed himself furthermore to instill confidence in us to show more abundantly the immutability of his counsel and give us confidence. 
He promised and took an oath, and we can know. But right there in the middle of that, after talking about promising to Abraham, making an oath, swearing by himself, he says in verse 15, and so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Without Abraham patiently enduring, it didn't matter about the immutability of God's counsel because Abraham would not have met the conditions. We need to understand that God is able, that God is willing, and that God is unchangeable, but we have to come to Him and meet Him through diligence, faith, and patience. There are many things, like I said, that we could talk about that show us why we can be confident in our salvation. I hope these few things were a benefit to you and were an encouragement to you. And I hope that you too can grow in your confidence that you are going to heaven because of God's plan and His work, but also because you have met Him in faith and obedience. Next week, we're going to continue our study of James, beginning with James 2. And I hope that you're there to listen. I thank you for your kind attention, and I hope you have a blessed day. Thank you for listening to this edition of Pondering Scripture. It may be that you have some questions or comments. If so, don't hesitate to email me at jeremiahstancox at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day.